fast, Obi. I hope you are doing well. What the hell? No, you're not. Hey, what the heck is going on? This is my show. Stop. Why are you inflicting me? No, no, no. I'll be damned if AI takes over this job right now. Let's try this again. Hello, world. This is the Awoken Word Podcast, and I am your host, an actual living, breathing human, Anu Drastogi. I've got two letters for you. A-I. You may have heard about it recently. It's everywhere. Every technology company is talking about it. AI is in everything. It's in your software. It's in your phone. It's in your clothing. It's in your soup. It's in the pre-written scripts of your politicians. AI is literally all-pervasive and everywhere. And yet, so few people actually understand what AI is for all the noise that's out there about this. I am really excited about today's episode because it's actually been a long time in the making. My guest today I actually met back in 2018 through a mutual friend. And while we were talking, in passing, somehow the conversation around the ethics of AI came up and I was all in. And so we started to push around some conversations and ideas at that point and we agreed that we would reconnect at some point to actually sit down and have a proper conversation for a woken word. My guest today is Martin Ryan. Martin is, as he would put it, a walking contradiction. He is an innovation and strategy, human-centered design leader. He is a very thoughtful, very conscientious individual who thinks deeply about how we as humans interact with the world and how we as humans create things that we then interact with. He's got a background and a fairly diverse tool set in human-centered design, in ethnography, in AI, in social sciences, and overall innovation and business strategy. Martin is currently a foresight and transformation strategy leader, and prior to this, he was the global head of service and solution design at Element AI, a really interesting AI startup. And when we met, I was most interested in just hearing from someone who has spent as much time as he has in this space thinking about the ethics of AI. Much like other evolutions in human history, there are ethical questions that get raised when something truly new faces us. And in this case, this is something truly new. It's been in the works for a long time. AI is something conceptually that has been around for several decades, and those decades worth of research and innovation and thinking have led us to the moment that we find ourselves in today. Now, I mentioned since our original conversation in 2019, things have changed a lot. Well, that was true up until a year ago, but as of November 30th, 2022, things changed completely. That date, November 30th, 2022, is when OpenAI launched publicly ChatGPT. And within days, this new technology and the capabilities that it gave the average person went absolutely viral. And it unleashed a new tsunami of AI interest and excitement and possibilities. I'm recording this intro on November 22nd. 
2023, so not even one full year later. We are finding ourselves on the precipice of a truly transformative moment in history for humanity. And this is the moment that I really want to sit down with Martin to unpack. Now, I'll let you know that we recorded this conversation by happenstance just days before the entire debacle happened at OpenAI with the CEO, Sam Altman, being pushed out by the board and a whole bunch of chaos in Silicon Valley and Sam potentially joining Microsoft. But then as I sit down to record this intro, I have learned that Sam is actually now back at OpenAI in his CEO role with a new board being appointed. So the world of AI is dramatic and the world of those in the field of AI is extremely dramatic. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Was it this episode of Awoken Word that caused the entire hoopla over at OpenAI and shook the AI world? I guess we'll never know. Anyhow, I wanted to approach the conversation around AI from a different perspective because we've all read and learned and watched a lot about the technology, the advancements, big data models, natural language processing, the number of parameters involved, what is the actual trajectory of the technology. Those are all valid and interesting questions. However, I really wanted to understand the human experience as we begin to look something very different in the mirror. And so what you'll hear in this conversation between Martin and I are some very important questions on how we as humans interact with technology, how we change as a result of interacting with that technology, and what that actually means in our day-to-day life. We unpack a bunch of different threads, including complex systems that humans have designed in the past, and in some cases we've actually gotten it more or less right. We talk about the case of civil aviation and how the entire global system has largely arranged itself around a cause of safety that is actually mutually beneficial to everybody involved in that mix. We talk a lot about the regulation of AI and how much of a challenge that is and how we're actually late to the game and even thinking about it. Because unlike every other advancement in human history, including other technical advancements, AI's rate of growth, its rate of transformation, and the exponential increase in complexity that's happened so quickly is actually outpacing our human linear ability to be able to process what's actually happening and to be able to conceptualize what level of regulation and rules and guardrails actually need to be put in place. We speak a lot about the the challenge that we face as societies in coming to shared values in terms of how we should interact with the world and how organizations that are introducing this technology into the world should be governed. And there are so many different possibilities ahead of us that we can't even yet conceptualize that it really warrants a thoughtful conversation. In this conversation, you'll also hear a fair bit of dialogue around the interplay between the capitalist enterprise, AI, technology, and what it is that humans actually have a capacity to be able to absorb at any given point in time. Martin shares some fairly well thought out and unique thoughts on the interplay between capitalism, technology, AI, and the way that human society interacts in this ecosystem. 
And so the questions that are being posed here are not just about AI, they're also about the advancement of human civilization. Now, we don't get deeply technical in this conversation. It is very much at uh, the level of ethics and social impact and humanity. There are a number of things we didn't get to cover because it's just such a wide sweeping topic. We didn't, for instance, really go into the displacement of jobs, which is one of the key concerns that many people have about the emergence of AI. What is it going to do to actually take jobs away from people and move it to machines or to consolidate economic wealth in the hands of a few? These are all very important questions, but we didn't actually get deep into those questions. You will, however, hear something that I hadn't heard before personally, which is the idea of displacement. The idea that any new technology, any new innovation, by its very design, displaces something that existed prior to it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Martin and appreciated his time. If you are one who thinks deeply about technology and how it impacts our lives and how we can meaningfully move forward together in a path that's best for everyone, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, I give you my conversation with Martin Ryan. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. Check one, two, three. All right, here we are. Well, here we are again. Here, here we are again, indeed. I am back in the bungalow in the sky with Martin. Long story short, we met just over almost five years ago, and then we had a conversation about four years ago, mm-hmm. and then I had a series of cataclysmic studio and hard drive failures, and. Thought I'd lost the audio, but recovered it. But it gave us a good excuse to kind of reconnect. Yeah, and, the, world, uh, the world has changed a little bit. Yeah, a few things science. have happened. Like in the it's, last... worth, it's worth revisiting. Yeah, for sure. Some of the threads. There was a pandemic. There's some yeah. other. One, one, one or two things. Yeah, one or two things. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's great to be back here. It's good to see you. You look yeah. the absolute same as you did four years ago. Thank you. That's obviously not true, but uh, no, it is. It. it is true. I could use the picture from four <laughs> years ago, and it would, it would still fly. Well, you know, Zoom filters are helping me propagate that, but it's nice to know that it somehow still works in person. Obviously, no one other than you and I have heard the original conversation, so this is essentially the first time for everyone on Awoken Word hearing you and hearing about you. So, mm-hmm. before we jump into the uh, the depths of technology and AI, who are you and how did you end up sitting here with me? Uh, I'll skip the, the meeting part, which you just, uh, you just mentioned, but my story is sort of an, an interesting one. I, I would say that my, my career, and I've been, I guess, working for about 20 years now, started and rode the early ascension and sort of peak of human-centered design or design thinking movement within business and really made the most of that. Uh, I came out of university uh, wanting to find some sort of high-impact, socially-driven way of contributing to the world. Uh, 
and and sort of really started with that mindset and found my way first into corporate social responsibility, but then very quickly into uh, like research, like qualitative, in-depth ethnographic research because I, uh, I spent a little bit too much time with uh, executives or in some cases creative directors who did absolutely no research and just imagined their, their own solutions to complex social issues. And I sort of had a pretty allergic reaction to that and just had a, a personal agreement with myself where I was like, if I'm going to do this kind of work or if I have an idea that I'll, I'll contribute to something positively, I better know what I'm talking about and I better understand the issues that I'm trying to you know, intervene in. And so that really, that led me into research. And that just sort of happened to coincide with um, that movement, which is all research-based. It's always get to know your, your users or understand the social context in which you're developing a product. Um, and so I was collaborating with social scientists and doing in-depth uh, research as this kind of uh, movement in society and business was starting to pick up. And, you know, I did my uh, master's in sort of a similar direction uh, in strategic foresight and innovation, which is sort of added kind of a systems thinking and sort of futures lens to my work. And I just kind of scaled from research to service design to like corporate innovation strategy and then hopped out of consulting into uh, a, an AI startup uh, called Element AI uh, right at its founding. I was the second person hired in, in Toronto. Um, that's right around when, when we met. And I left uh, the consulting world and all of that craft and all of that research to a degree um, because I was deeply concerned about what I was starting to do and what I was seeing in, in the sort of consulting ecosystem, which was a lot of strategy and a lot of conceptual product development that um, assumed the use of technology, in this case, largely uh, data-driven or artificial intelligence-based technology right. that nobody understood. So it was sort of like this re recapitulation of the same issue I had at the beginning of my career, which is like, I'm in a room and people are imagining how to do something, hopefully better, and I'm so certain they don't know what the f they're talking about yeah yeah and i didn't know either I'm like i don't understand this technology i'm like well okay the first version of this was qualitative research the second version of it like 15 years later is like technology i have to get close to the thing which is like making and shaping the world i need to understand it if i'm going to continue to participate effectively in making and shaping the world and so that's why I joined the, that company and they actually really wanted to apply human-centered design and design thinking to the design of artificial intelligence. So it all just like worked out really well. And, and so I was able to bring that tool set to this new problem and use, use that to help me learn about the other. So it was, it was perfect. Um, and it was, it was a totally wild ride, boom and bust startup. It was scaled too quickly without creating enough value and was acquired. And uh, I still work for the company that acquired. Right. Acquired them in That's, it. It's interesting that you kind of stood up to become an inoculation against an individual kind of 
having their own superimposed worldview and pushing out this is how things should be, right? Without mm-hmm. necessarily basing it on research, basing it on real world empirical evidence of this is how people need it to be or want it to be. Mm-hmm. There's design, and I think most people understand to some extent what design means, right? Because design's all around us, whether in the physical or the digital mm-hmm. world. What does human-centered design mean to you? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good question, uh, and it remains a relatively confusing topic. I, I do think a lot of this field has been now uh, mainstreamed and like sort of functionally absorbed into most companies. Uh, it started in a more strategic place, and now it's resolved more explicitly in uh, product development, and even and more so in digital product development. But for me, it's always been better decision making and better strategy because I'm not a formal designer of any kind, digital, you know, uh, graphic or industrial or otherwise. Um, but have always worked with with them. Um, I've always been in a strategic role and promoting the value of understanding a situation from a diversity of perspectives and in many cases also a plurality of of futures just so you have can make better informed decisions so design in its essence for me is just a way at making more informed Hmm. more strategically aligned meaning you sort of like more appropriately aligned with an organization or a business but also much more importantly aligned with the people the business is serving and the sort of context or cultural, societal, environmental, environmental, et cetera, that it's operating in. Like you just do not get to even even close to an alignment of those things unless you do your research. And design has sort of always fundamentally been a, a human out process where you sort of observed, you know, to that kind of classic quote, you know, a, a chair in a room, right. a room in a house, house in a neighborhood, neighborhood in a, in a country, kind of like you walk out the scales until you have sort of found the right balance of the thing you're, the decision you're making, or the thing you're trying to build in context of its wider decision making. So design is just about fixing a certain blind spot in that sort of business and sort of people have had, you know, uh, in the past around how you did that. Right. And it just brought the human experience, elevated the human experience into that decision-making process. You uh, you said something that actually triggered a thought for me. I, I've never actually conceptualized it this way, but design of anything is essentially a snapshot of the amalgam of decisions made by an individual or group of people up until that point. Mm-hmm. Like the design of you know this TV, for example. Yeah. We're going to make it rectangular. Mm-hmm. We're going to make it two and a half inches thick. We're going to use light emitting diodes. We're going to agree that it's 1980 by 1020 pixels. All of those things is a series of decisions. And at some point you decide to ship it, Mm -hmm. you know, in the physical or the digital world. It's a snapshot of all those decisions up until that point, which materials you use. I hadn't actually thought about design as, I mean, obviously I realized that there's decisions made in design, but this is actually the representation of all those decisions. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, another way of putting it is that the most uh, essential part of the design process is the problem you you decide to apply design to solve. 
And so how do you frame, find and frame that problem? And that's a lot of what human-centered design was about, was I'm going to look at the social, socio-technical systems around this more carefully. So I frame the problem more carefully. And, and so that is always the first thing. Like someone had to frame a problem around the world needs flat televisions. Like, I mean, that, that was the thing. It's like, right. you know, like there was someone who, who decided that was the, you know, the opportunity and problem frame that they were going to go after. And, you know, and they drove technology to deliver on that need that, that they, as they framed it. Do you ever but watch that's, The Simpsons? That's what's most essential. Yeah. Uh, of course. I grew up on The Simpsons. Do you remember when uh, Homer's brother brought Homer in to design the car? Uh, not specifically, uh, but I sort of have an image of the car in my head. It, it was yeah. this, this bulbous, yeah. Yeah, like, it was, hilarious it was looking thing with a giant awesome. dome. Had something like 12 cup holders. Everything about it was ridiculous. It was Homer as a consumer designing the car that he thinks yeah. you know everyone would want. I, I don't know why that image just came to mind. I, I guess in, in that case, human-centered design for him looks a little bit different than it does for everybody. But when we're designing at scale, we're actually trying to design something in most cases that many can use, right? You know, outside of something that's bespoke to a specific individual or a mm -hmm. custom home or something. When you're making design decisions that have to go across a large number of people mm -hmm. and, you know, there's trade-offs in those decisions, how do you go about navigating those types of decisions? Well, I think that opens up a bit of a Pandora's box around, uh, you know, our current relationship with uh, technology because it is um, almost impossible in the way that we have structured our relationship. So if we take it out of the digital realm and just ask the question, you know, about um, think about a technology that has scaled well and, you know, we did have to serve a lot of diverse interests and we had to do it in a safe um, trusted way that, you know, yeah, did support a diversity of experiences and people. We could take uh, air, like commercial air, air travel for an ex a great example, right? It's, sound, it's, it's impossible really on its face to think that that is the safest way to travel. But it is a plane mm -hmm. internationally. Yeah. Like really? And we built the most complex in some cases, not very pleasant system, but most complex system, uh, both all the way from the technical regulatory environment through to the commercial regulatory environment to make that system function in the best interest, interest of you, which is unfortunately not your legroom, but is the fact that you get from A to B right. without dying and you feel safe and you can trust trust it. That's, that's what it's fundamentally providing. And so what airline travel has solved is that basic universal need, right? It is a, it's an extremely complex offering with extremely complex technology. That it's sitting on extremely uh, complex technology. But there is this incredible undergirding of, of regulatory uh, expectations uh, and institutions and frameworks that are framing the development of that technology, pointing it towards an almost extreme concept of safety, like zero tolerance levels right. of, of, of safety. And it, it, the regime is as complicated as they become, as they are, 
but the result is kind of amazing, right? It's complexity on top of complexity. It's, it's technical complexity multiplied by regulatory complexity. Still, it's getting everybody, no matter who you are, from A to B in the safest way possible. Uh -huh. And so I'm, I'm saying all of that as a relatable example and uh, only so you can imagine now if we were talking about anything digital, there's literally no infrastructure or no. guardrails or anything. We do have an executive order though. Yeah, no, if, but, know, but we've, we've lived <laughs> with digital technology at scale for about 20 years now and we can like talk about yeah. all the ways that has uh, altered uh, society um, in a bit but um, it it really is important to absorb uh, the basic fact that we have allowed a powerful technology akin to like cars planes pharmaceutical drugs of consequence to the way life is lived on this planet uh, to scale immediate uh, very quickly obviously faster than physical technology because mm -hmm. physics yeah so it can scale faster but we've allowed this to happen um, with essentially no underlying guardrails nothing yeah. pointing it away from unfettered capitalism towards something like zero tolerance safety because that is what airline the airline industry needed to function zero tolerance safe or nothing there's a lot nested in what you just said i, I want to come back to the regulatory part mm -hmm. for, in a moment but what's interesting with airlines and civil aviation i don't know if this is in the 50s probably the 50s 60s era when there's actually a need for for the government in the u.s to be able to understand what projectiles what flying objects are coming in and out of the mm. country so they essentially laid the groundwork for what mm -hmm. eventually became Sabre, right? Mm -hmm. The system that keeps track of all yeah. planes and, and yeah. objects. So we think that that's what had actually an originally a defense sort of genesis, right? Yeah. Actually then creates infrastructure that can be used in a civil context. Yeah. And this is the type of complexity that's abstracted away from most people's thinking. You don't think mm -hmm. about these things and mm -hmm. you shouldn't, frankly, as a consumer, shouldn't have to, right? An everyday yeah. person shouldn't have to. But the fact that there is a system that tracks all planes over the country or any country for that matter at any given point in time, what does that actually do? Well, A, countries know what's coming in and out, right? Mm -hmm. um, from a defense perspective. But B, now you can book flights in real time you can check the status of a flight in real time. Mm -hmm. All of these other things are enabled by being able to create a system that captures that sort of complexity. And that then generates the conditions for further complexity as well. But I think this is the kind of world that we're living in. And yet when it comes to airlines, even with all that complexity, I think the value proposition, like you were saying, is the exact same. I want to get from point A to point B mm -hmm. and I want to not die. Yeah. And I think with aviation it's a little bit of an easier mental leap for somebody to say okay i get that i want to not die when i get on this plane exactly. right the yeah. consequences are very obvious they're very tangible yeah with digital technology and you know ai is only going to compound it we're not actually that proximate to the consequences right yeah. you don't realize yeah. that this tweak in this variable in this algorithm could result in 1500 suicides in you oh know southern yeah, california yeah. you're speaking my language yeah no that is exactly that's exactly it um and i think this is the point you're making is is something that is too little 
discussed and uh, reflected on and used as a, as a form of criticism of technology, but more just like, like humble truth about humans with this kind of technology. And, and with a plane, yeah, no failure of imagination, my friend. Like, imagine for me a plane crash. Mm -hmm. Pretty easy, pretty awful. Yeah. Pretty immediate. Like, no delay. As you like, imagine for me the erosion of democracy Doesn't over 10 happen. years. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just not the same. Humans are built sort of biologically to uh, respond well or manage risk well when those risks are immediate and direct. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm about to be physically harmed or I could be physically harmed, and they get scaled when sort of groups could be physically harmed, right? So that's why our aviation regulation is so much better than our individualist auto regulation. It's like, it's much better, but, you know, we did much better, much faster because of the collective horror of plane crashes. We get that kind of risk. Digital technology just sort of like right, drives right through a blind spot. Indirect, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, and it's delayed. And we were just biologically not set up to have a shared experience and understanding and relationship to risk that is indirect and delayed. And digital technology is exactly that. And do you know what else is like that? Climate change. Yeah. It's exactly the same. So digital technology is like maybe the risks, as actually as we've been experiencing them, they seem to be manifesting in like serious consequences in five to 10 years. Do we manage it in, in years and, and maybe under a decade? Obviously, climate change is more like decades to centuries. And so we are even worse at having a, a shared experience of something that, that is so abstracted from our direct Yeah, no, uh, we, we don't operate evolutionarily. We evolved as hunter-gatherers. You can trust up to 150 people in your group. You know that there's a bear over there, a lion over there, mm -hmm. there's shelter in that cave. We are the same bags of meat walking around on the planet today that we were, yeah. you know, 250,000 years ago. Yeah. We're just not hardwired to be able to really conceptualize long time horizons and a lot of complexity. There was that Netflix movie, I think it was, was it Looking Up with Leonardo DiCaprio, where there's an asteroid headed oh, yes, towards yeah. Earth. And they warn everybody about it. Yeah, it was a hilarious movie, but they warn everybody about it. Like, mm -hmm. this is a very clear danger. Yeah. The math tells us it's coming. This is yeah. imminent, right? Yeah. Every possible thing that they could do to kind of raise the alarm, they did. Yeah. And in the end, still, no one really took it seriously. I think it's the same with climate change because the time horizon seems so long. Yeah. I wouldn't say that there's disputed science, but there's enough noise in this signal-to-noise ratio about the fact that, yes, we have, for the last 10,000 years, for example, or yeah. the Holocene, the Earth has warmed up due yeah. to its own sort of natural cycles. But yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that humans don't have a role to play. So we tend to get paralyzed under complexity. And digital, I think, is just the next level of that because the complexity mm -hmm. compounds so quickly. Like I was just, I only just heard about this, but Amazon is apparently working on Olympus now, a new new model that's supposed to be two trillion parameters. So something like twice the size of GPT-5, right? Oh my. How... We can't even conceptualize like the yeah. very basics yeah. of, of digital. And now we're already talking about these models like Olympus, like Llama, like all mm -hmm. these others that are coming out. Yeah. And there's a handful of people that do, I, I do believe they get conceptually, they understand what's happening. But even then, 
if you follow any of the laws of AI, any system that's complex enough to behave intelligently is too complex for us to understand. Mm -hmm. Just by design, that's just how it works. So we're creating something full well knowing mm -hmm. that it's too complicated for us to get. And yet we're at this kind of an inopportune window where mm -hmm. we can interject, we can kind of, we can do something to, yeah. to solve for this, but yeah. I'm not really sure what that looks yeah. like. Well, I mean, what I, what I do know is that we've never had to act this quickly before. Right. So to, to just mm. go back to our, um, our earlier analogies, the, you know, yes, we've done better, but still not great with some other physical uh, and very complex systems like planes or cars or whatever. But uh, that relationship and regulatory environment uh, evolved over many decades. Right. It, it actually took time for these things to scale. We saw consequences, we reacted. We saw consequences, we reacted, we kept building. And to your, your earlier, your other example about the, uh, you know, even the capability of tracking planes and objects, we kept building capabilities that improved the system over time and the regulatory environment was able to move mm. in pace. We needed time. Right. Um, and so like, that's what we need. Like we have to like see, like we just need those feedback loops to like do this, all gone. They've collapsed, right? This is happening. This hasn't even been a year since ChatGPT was yeah. launched. Not even a year. And so, what happens when the space and time that you need to understand even a new attempt to understand new complex technology, and then work through the complex questions of how you govern it or set up guardrails to prioritize the best interests of society or people, when all of that time goes away? And what has happened instead? is that without any of those guardrails, the technology, because it is digital and sort of has scale built in, um, is released and uh, scales and entangles itself in society in no time at all. Right. And now, like, it's actually a very different situation, right? And this is the other nuanced but very, very hard thing to wrap our heads around, which is all previous physical or biological technologies uh, have been like physically rate limited, right? Yeah, and bought us that bought us that time, and so we we could see it coming. It was a linear line out. Now it's scaled first, and now we have to look backwards and figure out how to regulate something that's already happened, rather than look forwards and see, oh, this is growing. And you know we need to ensure its growth is responsible. The growth happens immediately. It creates a mess, right? It 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 sort of creates new social behaviors and entanglements in business and society and culture and like expectations that people start imagining certain uh, futures, dystopian or utopian or whatever. It it just entangles itself, and now we have to deal not only with the technology. But we have to deal with the cacophony of perspectives, which are not aligned, right? Um, about the, how this technology has like already kind of worked its way into our lives, and so, kind of like any entitlement program, right? Like you give people something, try taking it away. It doesn't work very well, and so now regulation isn't seen as is, isn't easily framed as kind of an iterative 
tweaking towards the social good, but it's more like taking away an entitlement program. It's like, oh, you're going to take away my TikTok? Yeah. No, no, no. I, it's my right to have TikTok. You know, it's like, this is my right. I've been, I've already, I already have it. I'm already living with it. What do you mean you're going to take it away? Right? So it reframes uh, the relationship to regulation in, a, in a, actually a very, very uh, disruptive way. And, and so, and that is, again, just one more reason why we have been so poor at getting to any regulatory framework anywhere in the world around this because we have this sort of kind of entitlement program, entitlement-driven relationship with technology that was first just thrown at us we kind of like like for some reasons become dependent or addicted to, uh, and so who we can't take that. How are governments going to take it away or regulate it down when the expectation is already there? So it's put people in a very difficult situation. The most cynical point of view there, obviously, is that you know that is a strat. That's a strategy. That's a business strategy, right. and it's a very anti-social benefit. I think most things that happen in the world are, they start off organic and then someone realizes a trend that can be, or a wave that can be ridden and then they ride it deliberately. If I think about music uh, as as a musician and and having watched this over the years, we went from, you know, a handful of studios and a handful of record labels that would release a, you know, limited amount of music in a given year. Mm -hmm. And everyone in society would more or less listen to the same let's call it 10 or 15,000 albums in a, in, a, in a given year. And so there's a few curators that controlled the distribution of, of, of what was popular and what wasn't. And yet the artists that were making the music in most cases were still able to make money. They were making money off their mechanical mm-hmm. royalties, their yeah. writing royalties, etc. And then we get into the digital era, you know, Napster kind of blows things open. iTunes basically says, we're going to do that, but do it legally. And now you've got mp3s sitting on a server that is costing virtually nothing right there's no incremental cost in being able to even if that one song is only downloaded once in 10 years it's still going to make a profit for apple yeah and then we further that to streaming where now music is is omnipresent it's available you download the app yeah you sign up you can listen to anything from anywhere from any genre Mm -hmm. i use spotify i've used itunes in the past you know and so like I, i i kind of wrestle with some of these things myself Mm-hmm. There's an immediacy and an access to way more music that's created today than never would have been created because yeah. digital technology has democratized the means by which you can produce it, distribute it. Mm-hmm. All of those technological advances have actually, I think, been net positive for the greater community. Yet most mm-hmm. artists don't make any money off of their music. Mm-hmm. So most of their money has to be made off of touring, which is, again, now a physical thing. Mm-hmm. But the moment you have this conversation with someone who doesn't understand the backstory on the music industry and how artists make or don't make money. And you say, we shouldn't have something like streaming, right? That pays like, I think it's 0.0003 cents per stream. We shouldn't have something like that because you don't value the artist. You don't value how much time and effort they put into it. To your point, now you're taking away something that I just had. Mm -hmm. It had become an intrinsic part of my life. I listen to Spotify every single day uh, or Apple Music or whatnot. How dare you take that away from me? But when it actually arrived in your life, you didn't know one way or another. You didn't really think about the consequences. And frankly, no one who was rolling that out was thinking about the consequences yeah, exactly. of it. It's right? very hard to imagine the, like how these things are going to play, play out. And 
but there is a there is a there's a principle there or a thread around displacement right like so any new technology is going to displace mm -hmm. something that was there before you know a, a, in this case a, a, maybe an older technology or, and the business model that was around it um, certain behaviors and it, things will be displaced right and and so I suppose it's easy for us to imagine that it's all additive, but it's, it's, it's not, it never is. Right. I mean, you so, and I are displacing radio right now yeah, for, yeah, for yeah, some number exactly. of people. Exactly. Right. No, it's it, the, the things we had before are displaced by these new things that we're, uh, we're bringing into our lives. Like we are not as I think our sort of economic system would prefer, uh, us to be, but we are not unlimited production consumption machines. We're bathtubs. Right. We fill up and start overflowing. And, you know, the world is a little bit like that, too. It can only people can only sort of consume and manage so much. You bring something new in. Maybe it has a benefit, a convenience or, you know, some other quality, just novelty that moves people in that direction. Something is going away. Hmm. And uh, and this happens to to industries. But technology is a major driver of this kind of displacement. And so, yeah, we don't know that we're really what we're losing as we are sort of excitedly clamoring and trying to understand how to get the most out of the new technology. We're always losing something. And usually that's in the economic best interest of, of, uh, of you know, existing or, or new players because, you know, it's not the only thing that's being, uh, it's not only about what's being displaced, but technology is very good at like creating a new uh, surface area for capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like digital payments or digital music. It's just, it's another commercial surface. Like it's another layer, right? We, we, right. Keep, we keep building more layers for new versions. I, I mean, this is, this is very much a digital argument that's true for, true for, for almost any technology, it created a new space where new behaviors and new products of new kinds that deliver new kinds of value or offerings could be built and sold, where a market could be interjected where there was nothing before. And that seems and to be just inevitable human behavior. Like, I mean, if you look at the 08 financial collapse, mm -hmm. you had essentially these financial derivatives, like for, for the life of me, as much as I've read, I still don't completely understand the no, products. These portfolios, subprime mortgages, it's bought and sold. And eventually you have banks going under, you have people losing their homes. These are real world tangible consequences. These are planes yeah. dropping out of the sky, yeah. you know, coming back to that analogy. But the mechanisms and tools by which they were actually doing this were not built in the real world. They're not, yeah. there's no intrinsic value to these yeah subprime mortgages and these derivatives that were yeah. being traded and yet they have real world impact yeah. and i think to your point about creating these layers these meta layers that capitalism will find a way to harness i think digital has done that absolutely yeah. here and ai places, is yeah. amplifying that uh, exasperating mm -hmm. it yet i've wrestled with this a lot me personally like on the on the capitalism note i do believe that capitalism is out of all the systems that we've tried is the single greatest system for creating overall human outcomes. Mm -hmm. The fundamental problem, at least in my humble opinion, with capitalism today is not capitalism at its core. It's the fact that it is constantly hijacked and co-opted by other interests, right? That 
when money makes its way into politics, into democracies, mm -hmm. when money buys uh, surface area with regulators, fact of the matter is a lot of that happened during COVID with mm -hmm. the NIH being in bed with, um, you know, pharma companies who are actually making vaccines. There's all sorts of things like that. If you actually had proper regulatory infrastructure and the right checks and balances, I wouldn't say that there would be no corruption. There would be no breakages in the system. Of course there would. Humans are very ingenious that way. Yeah. But you have to be able to mitigate the desire of an individual or entity to knock everyone else out of the market, maximize their profits and maximize what's best for them at the expense of the collective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I would, I, I agree, but would probably reframe it just a little bit, which is like unfettered capitalism, i.e. On, only able to operate only by a profit motive and a growth motive is terrible. Right. Yes. It will always decimate and extract. And so the best examples of us creating markets that are like they're, they're, they're very useful for society and create far, far more good than bad, even though they create both, you know, are things like, well, we created a market around commercial air travel. Our food system is a, like a miracle. It is. Like, yeah. the, how do we get all of this stuff and not get sick all of the time? Like, these are amazing markets and very complex regulatory environments, very complex supply chain environments filled with all kinds of physical and digital technology. It's just that this sort of core growth and profit-driven value system, which is capitalism in its essence, has been uh, strongly oriented and moderated towards the safety of, or in some cases, welfare of people, right? So it is a strong hand that is required to keep that at bay. And so this is again, like the stark difference uh, between other places where we have messy, but like functioning systems that are delivering reliable outcomes for people, food, medicine, some areas of travel and digital technology. You have to absorb the fact yeah. that it is unfettered capitalism. There is no utopian outcome other than the continued productization of our most intimate selves mm -hmm. and additional layers for new kinds of markets that will be created without guardrails that say, we have to use this magical power to solve important problems, what do we want it for? Do we want it to accelerate our lives and amplify our consumption? Is that what we want AI for or whatever? No, that's not what anyone would answer. They would say, use it for the things, like use it to solve the problems that we need solved. Climate, you know, drug discovery, anything that is about the collective good, that's what people are gonna answer. But this is not what's going to happen by yeah. default. Yeah, so there's, the collective good is such an, interesting conversation on its own. I find that we have these recurring patterns in so many contexts. On the point about unfettered capitalism, for me personally, one of the things that enables capitalism to work the way that it does in, in you know much of the world is the public markets, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can have a number of institutional and retail investors invest in your company and that money is then used to yeah. grow the company. Yeah. On, a, on the surface, it's actually a brilliant mechanism. I think, but it starts to really fall down quite quickly, at least in my mind, because 
as a public entity with a handful of you know large shareholders, you end up in a situation where you're constantly driven by the incentives of the quarter, the dividends oh, of the yeah, quarter, yeah. the course, share yeah. price of the quarter. And because the incentive structure for that organization are not in the best interest of the collective, not even of all their customers or of the markets in general, but just a handful of shareholders, the people end up just gaming the system to score points in that particular game. And so they're doing like a drawdown in their dividends on a regular basis, or, you know, they're short selling stocks or what have you. If you look at social media in the same way, like we get this dopamine fix when you get some likes, right, on a post. There's enough psychology behind all of the work that's been done on on Facebook and other platforms that like anger and outrage just tends to rank higher in terms of keeping people on and engaged. And so that that might be an underlying sort of first principles truth about human psychology. But you still have a choice on whether or not you decide to weaponize it and extract value and, and whatnot from it. But it's turned into a game where we're kind of drawing down points. We're drawing down goodwill from people getting likes. Getting, giving them that dopamine. It's not that different than pulling out your dividend from a public company. And I think the through line here is that when we think about the collective good, we're not actually, A, I'm not sure that we're thinking about the collective good, or at least those people aren't. And B, we're not thinking about over a long enough time horizon. Because you could yeah. make, oh, certainly. Yeah, you could yeah. do something that could be net positive for the world in the next five years. Yeah but could blow up the planet five years and a day from now. Yeah. Right. And we don't think in those terms. And that's why I think that the quarterly, the the annual reviews and the quarterly reviews of public companies are a disservice to humanity in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not to say the public markets don't have a place, but we haven't found a way socially to agree on fundamental guardrails around what kind of world we want. Mm-hmm. Even within cities or neighborhoods, let alone countries or an entire planet. Yeah, I, I think it, it's it's uh, it can get so complicated so quickly that you know we all just sort of shut down to our to that earlier point. But you know, it's it, to me the clarity comes when you realize that we have successfully oriented like big systems and technologies towards singular goals in the past that are more welfare or societally driven, uh, just safety, Mm. right? Again, food, planes, it doesn't have to be like, it should first be safe, right? Our water treatment, that's not a commercial, that's not a market because people need safe drinking water. Well, you know, like we live in a developed economy and have the resources to uh, build infrastructure and ensure that. That was that is a single. It's not complicated. Yeah, no, it's, it will it, first be safe. So, what yeah. is the what's the ch- real challenge there? Is that uh, go back to our earlier conversation with digital technology? You know, yes. Yeah, so, of course, the answer is it should be safe for our kids, for us, right? But we don't. We haven't been able to have real conversations about these kinds of risks for reasons like we were talking about before, because they're more complicated and delayed. They're new, right? But we still want the same thing. We have the same expectation. And like this is this is why, like when it comes to social media, like there are 33 states in the US that are now suing uh, Meta mm-hmm. over the harms of social media. It's like this is happening now. It's on a big delay, but there's enough data um, and awareness building about 
the harms of social media, but also its equivalents to things like smoking, stuff like that. Like they're using the same legal framework right. that they, they that was used to go after tobacco companies. All of these states are using the same legal framework to sue Meta. It's all the it's all the same. They didn't have a duty of care, the guardrails to build something that was first safe, and then all of the other things. Right. And so they created something that optimized for engagement, created harm. In the case of social media, the displacement story is horrific, right? It, it has displaced uh, our children's sleep, our children's social development, um, it, and those things ultimately displacing their mental health. Like, it has really run ruin on a generation and a half. But that, that is also, I think, just classic textbook socialize the costs and privatize the profits right of course but that is exactly the system right so every new surface creates a market for something and displaces the complexity of that new market onto other surrounding systems or people like that's the way it always works the, the more layers like the the digital uh sort of uh dimension of our world stratified in so many new layers of production and consumption and so so but all of those are displacing complexity onto other players a lot of it actually just ends up on you and me and yeah. our in our lives right and it just gets displayed they 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 eat more space and take more time from us from our sort of limited bathtub capacity um but it happens yeah. usually slow enough that like we don't notice it until it's too late. Yeah, and we're we're like very easily captured by yeah. the the norms that we observe around us. Like if I see, oh, it's becoming normal to like own a cell phone and like be on social media, right? Like th this happened really quickly, by the way. Like it was, you know, like uh, I think 2012, somewhere over 50 percent of people, it may it may have been as high as 80 percent were already on social media. It was a requirement, a social requirement that you were on. It was no longer an optional behavior. It just tipped really, really quickly. But like anything like that where we see, oh, it's now we have to build our own GPTs because that's the thing. Like I'm not going to be competitive or professionally relevant if I'm not augmenting myself with generative AI now. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as we get these cues about the way we should be living and what technology, the way we should be using technology in our lives, we do it. Because we think, like, we're very sensitive to that stuff. Yeah. And it takes, there's only certain people who will, at the face value, reject what appears to be the trajectory of society. Um, but there will always be some. Um, so we're just, like, very easily caught up in, in that kind of signaling. And we're, we're social creatures. Uh, I want to get to, like, some of the kind of core, maybe nuanced concerns with AI specifically in a, in mm -hmm. a, in a bit. But, like... I'm struggling to think of actually a better example than the example you gave of civil aviation and airlines, right? Like in terms of a system where for the most part, the incentive structures for all stakeholders, all users of that system are more or well, more or less aligned, right? Mm -hmm. Airlines can make money. You know, you can get a career as an air traffic controller. Mm -hmm. I can fly to visit family, you know, like, you know, and I can now book it online. Like mm -hmm. all, all that seems great. Yeah. And I think that that system actually is perhaps one of the better systems that we've created. 
mean, you mentioned water treatment and at first glance, I feel like that is also a good one, but we are so susceptible to our own blindness when we're removed from things. So the people of Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. haven't had clean water for a long time. There's mm-hmm. a lot of reserves in Canada, like with uh, indigenous Canadians. Mm-hmm. There's one in Manitoba, I think it's like on a 30 year boil water advisory at this point. We have the technology, we have the infrastructure. There's there's really nothing that we don't have except for the collective political will to say all people who live in this country or in the US should have access to clean drinking water. And so still people fall through the cracks because it's not happening in Toronto or in New York mm-hmm. or whatnot. And so in a system even as blatantly obvious as water treatment and in something we can all agree that everyone should have access to clean water even there we don't have it foolproof and so when i think about something like ai or social media where it's that much harder to even understand the repercussions right like you know the the phones that we have which are using cobalt which is mined through a lot of manual labor Mm -hmm. even though all these cobalt mining companies say they Mm -hmm. don't use artisanal mines yeah like every one of us is culpable in in some way shape or form the silicon the transistors the lithium all of this stuff is we're so intertwined with the impacts of things that we don't want to have happen but we don't necessarily know it so I, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of a big believer that we at least need to bring awareness to it to start with. Yeah. But when I think about the water treatment example, again, it just, it, it lends concern that how do we get to a place where there are regulatory frameworks, where there are mm-hmm. checks and balances, especially when, if you watch the, the Facebook hearings or the meta hearings and you saw Congress kind of talking to Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. none of these people could even turn on a device if their life depended on it. Like, yeah. how are those people going to govern it? Yeah, I mean, there's like, obviously, there are different uh, um, cultural and political um, ideologies creating different outcomes around the world, right? And so like, in the US, Flint, Michigan has a privatized water system. And so again, there's no mystery there. Mm -hmm. This is a profit driven public utility should be should be managed by uh, a government institution with the public interest in the front. Instead, it is managed by a for-profit company with profit in the front. And so you get, you know, the erosion and eventually the complete uh, lack of safety in the provision of that thing. There's no, there really is no mystery there. In the case of like, you know, water treatment uh, for remote indigenous uh, populations in Canada, that is a political will thing. That's not a, that's not a commercial mm-hmm. problem. That, that, was, uh, that, that is a sort of a flaw in a value system, a political value system in, in our country. But you know, the same, the same thing, healthcare, socialized medicine, profit-driven medicine, there's a reason why healthcare in the US is you know, 3x more expensive than anywhere else in the world and yet delivers worse outcomes. Yep. All, again, like, it's really not a mystery. Right. So how to what degree have you put a duty of care in the public interest in front of a free market ideology and a right. profit and the mecha, the engine, right? That we know what the engine is. We know that it's singular. It's really good at what it does. But have you put anything in front of it? Like what kind of GPS does it have? Or is it like a Roomba? It's just gonna go boom, 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 boom anywhere it wants. And it's just going to suck everything up. 
Now, like any good system that we've ever built, any good application of a technology or a domain that is like functioning well for people, and I wouldn't even stretch that so far as for the planet because we obviously have not been very good at that, but well for people has put human interests formally in front of the free market engine right. underneath the organization of uh, capital and labor. If you take that away, like find me an example. Like they just, I just don't think they exist. If you take that away, you get very dubious outcomes. You get the exploitation of, and of, of human labor, the extraction of environmental uh, resources, you get, um, you know, basic things like safety put in jeopardy because that's not what it's optimizing for. Right. Just to kind of, I think, maybe shine a spotlight on a few of the things, at least these are the things that my simple brain can kind of wrap it, its head around a bit. So AI is a system of complexity that is in some regards, orders of magnitude beyond anything that we've created, just because there's so much mm-hmm. happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a if you have a two month old, you leave the two month old on a blanket in the room, and you come back, you know, ten minutes later, the two month old is still there. Yeah. That's not the case with a six month old or a, yeah. you know an eighteen month old. Yeah. They could be anywhere, right? Yeah. And in that Terrifying. same way, like AI, like you blink and then something's changed completely, and it's yeah. complete. It's changed in ways that you can't even comprehend. When we last spoke at that time, like GPT hadn't, it wasn't a thing yet, no. right? So it was still three years away from yeah. you know, well, coming. Well, technically it was being developed, but it was not public. Sure, yeah, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't public. Yeah. And now, you know, sort of the, the rapid increase in generative AI has, has been interesting as a, as a user of it. So I, I was, you know, I was late to the game, but, you know, I started using chat GPT just to kind of see like as a, mm-hmm. you know, what, what is the experience of using this? Because I've used a lot of different systems in the past, but you could tell just from a first interaction, this is fundamentally different than anything before this, yeah. right? And now with generative AI, so I was mentioning the episode I recently, it was an impromptu conversation with my son about the situation in Gaza. And it's a short conversation. I wanted to put together like a, a quick video as kind of a backdrop for the conversation. And so I worked with some footage that I had, but it's the first time I actually used like some of these generative AI tools mm-hmm. to essentially create like, you know, an animated video montage for it. Yeah. And I saw this about six, eight months ago, and I was not that impressed. It looked, it kind of sucked, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing what's possible with even a few prompts, and it's crazy. It's incredible. So as an artist, part of me is like, I don't know where this power is going to go. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it also allowed me to do something much more quickly and actually, frankly, create something I wouldn't have been able to create Thank otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so there's this push and pull between the things you're able to do, but the things that you end up trading off as a result. And one of the things that struck me still is a, is a running problem with AI and these, you know, these large language models is data bias. So I was trying some filters on, on one of my videos for a previous one. And with videos of myself, anytime it would generate an avatar in any style, mm-hmm. I was either very clearly a white guy mm-hmm. or I was a black guy. And often that really depended on... Mm-hmm the lighting in that particular shot. Like I actually saw it morphing in some of the the test videos between those two. 
and I'm, you know, I'm trying different prompts. I'm trying to tweak this differently. I finally tried one filter. I forget which app I've, I've tried so many, but with one of these, I tried, there was an Indian theme is like the Jaipur theme. The only time I could get myself to look like myself mm-hmm. was when I put the Jaipur theme. And then it was like classic brown guy with like a twisty mustache and everything. Yeah. It was kind of funny, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I thought to myself, behind the scenes, the data set that they have available to them Mm-hmm. that has trained this model to ingest the video footage that I'm putting in only sees these two outcomes based on those that data. Mm-hmm. So it's not really representative of me unless that was a thing I was going for. And I thought to myself, okay, four years you know, since our last conversation, talked about data bias and things have advanced a tremendous amount and yet we're still there. So the data that a lot of these models is running off of doesn't take into account the full kind of global population or even a country's full population. Mm -hmm. And even where it does, the engineers who are engineering those solutions have, you know, albeit, you know, unconscious biases, right? Or they're, they're inadvertently engineering something that didn't, they didn't intend to create that outcome. Mm -hmm. But these outcomes happen so quickly now. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's one of the things with AI that for a lot of people is kind of frightening is that like we're, building scalable decisions on very limited data sets that actually need quite a bit more. Yeah, well, I think uh, they're becoming a lot less limited. And the assumption that I have is, you know, these large models uh, and, you know, I suppose Amazon's Olympus as well, will just keep getting bigger. And so the application of these models for critical systems when there is like evidence of bias, which is one of the areas of regulatory oversight that's required, like should they should not be allowed, right? Like you, if you have the application of this kind of system and you can identify a bias, racial or otherwise in it that would undermine its ability to make effective decisions, it should not be used, right? And that is like one of the clearest sort of buckets of regulatory oversight that is needed. But at the same time, it's just like really just not the game at all anymore, right? Like they're just, they're not only sucking up everything in the world, all of the available data, but I'm sure you saw last week that, you know, you now can make your own personal GPTs, mm-hmm. right? So while that information is sandbox and is not using, you know, what you give it personally won't be used to train, you know, the underlying model, you can now feed it or you can fix it yourself. You can feed it your own bias, build build a version of this that is very specific to you with your personal information for whatever specific purpose or context that you need. And so we're almost solving for that by allowing people to just inject their own bias into, into these things and, and sort of fix it in any way you want. Right. But the application of these maybe more narrow systems or or large language models for critical systems needs to be tightly regulated. And that's a big part of the regulatory mm-hmm. conversation right. right now. And you can sandbox and test for these things. And we don't really do it very well. And that's one of the things that's going to get better. But, you know, the cultural conversation, the implications that we can't see for ourselves and for society in five, ten years, akin to what we were talking about before. Uh, it's still the bigger conversation, right? So uh, when we last spoke, you know, four or five years ago, um, you know, 
a the conversation about AI was very different. It was narrow. It was being led by a small set of companies mm -hmm. acquired a lot of expert staff, a lot of money, uh, and they were producing mixed results. Data was a big, you know, was a big constraint, and it was really the, the technology was black, black box, but the development was boxed off right. into a very tiny little corner of the world, and it was very interesting. Everyone was like, "Watch what's happening over in that corner." You know, this is like people were imagining on top of this very closed little privileged group of people experimenting with this technology. One of the things that has happened uh, as of a year ago is uh, akin to our uh, scale first deal with the consequences later is that ChatGPT is now a public mainstream yeah. tool. This is now being used and scaled in the mainstream public domain not the closed corporate domain, which was the case when we last spoke. Uh, so now it is entangled. And, and now people have the power to personalize it and build their own cacophony of versions of this. Right? So we have already enough power and all of the tools to automate as much of or augment as much of ourselves with this technology as we want. Mm -hmm. And on the back of last week's announcement, you know, in six months, in a year, there will be an Apple App Store-sized availability of other people's well-tuned versions of this that you can take for yourself, right? So our ability to do this sort of automation and augmentation to ourselves is really it's really hard to wrap your hands around that it is it is growing so fast and in a year and two years will be so extreme like you just have to step back and ask yourself so what will that do to us over time well it plays into like i think just a natural desire i mean i i remember in school i always kind of wished like you know in the morning when i was too lazy to get out of bed like i wish i just had a quote of myself that I could go to school or you know later on in life go to work or whatnot and that there is sort of an underlying desire there, right? I think everyone does want to be, some people might be motivated by a combination of laziness and say, I actually don't want to do this. So now your, your GPT version of yourself is doing some of that. Some actually do want to augment themselves and make themselves better. There could be a variety of different motivations, but regardless, the ability to be able to do that now is unfettered, ungoverned, unmitigated by individuals going to do it. And now there's a commercial imperative on top of that where you can buy essentially that that model. Like that's, we, we, we're we not great with handling that much power. No, no, we're, we're, we're terrible. We, and, you know, proven totally incapable with less lesser versions of, of, of this kind of power. But like, I, I think the, a, a nice uh, part of this conversation is, is, is the, this comment on displacement. So mm -hmm. the, what is being displaced? What was displaced with, social media we can now see, right? There were a lot of developmentally significant social behaviors displaced by a new form of addictive behavior with a phone. And there were lots of unintended negative consequences there. So we displaced a lot of things in our social realm, uh, replaced them with things that were lower fidelity, less healthy. And if you were young enough, inhibited uh, development. Mm -hmm. So what happens now? Displacement still, right? Things will be displaced. What are we displacing? Uh, it's far more intimate. 
it, it is our cognitive and creative capacities. It is our relationship to certain types of craft or work in our professional domains. We are automating, you can say augmenting, but we are, we are truly displacing and sort of handing over to technology core elements of our humanity. And there is actually studies on this, right? So people have been concerned for a while and uh, you know, the, the sort of consensus opinion is that as you displace more fundamental human attributes and decision-making to technology, away from people, like the more you give away of yourself, even though it may augment elements of that activity, the more of our, our own selves and, fun, and dignity is given away too. And the more you forget about social media, the more you open up moral and existential harm, you start to crack the foundations of society, essentially because you're creating people who are less grounded in themselves in general. And, yeah. and, and you, you really are displacing, there's not a lot left to displace, right? This is the last, this is the final frontier for capitalism essentially and technology. Once we have given away everything we can to this kind of technology and we'll keep getting better, you know, it's the long tail yeah, it's the long tail of what's left of our humanity to sort of give away and displace, um, distribute is a better word. But the more we give away to technology and looking at it like that long tail, the end of that graph is terrible. Uh, well, yeah, and and the long tail in in Chris Anderson's book is where the majority of the opportunity and the profit and and all that. Well, you, is, you'll keep finding yeah. smaller and smaller grained like surfaces, mm -hmm. right? But the story about our experience of ourselves and the world has been, was written long before these new surfaces are discovered, right? Yeah, I, th this is something I, I've noticed conversations of, of, or at least parts of this, this conversation kind of happen with, with friends a lot. And one thing I've been back and forth about is are there some things that we really need to know? Do I really need to know how to do with certain people who are more in defense of having devices with kids sooner, right? Mm -hmm. Or it's more important that they're able to use this technology more quickly um, because they're not going to have to write by hand, for example. That's just a common thing that comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. Like handwriting is just going to go away. There's no real need for it. And what I find in that that argument that's completely flawed is if you choose not to handwrite, that that that's one thing. But we are for the foreseeable future until we are literally able to update, upload the entire consciousness of our brains, you know, into a server. We are still physical beings, mm -hmm. and in order to create, not not all knowledge is just information that's kind of you know floating around in different parts of the brain. The ability to be able to grasp a pen and use the fine motor skills and feel the resistance of the, the, the tip of the pencil or the pen against the paper to be able to move something in that way while thinking a thought, right? While maybe daydreaming about what you're going to do tomorrow. Mm -hmm. All of those things that are happening are actually part of what make us who we are. 
right? And if you took away the handwriting part of that exercise, you're actually short selling, you know, that child or that person on the fine motor skills, perhaps some of the nonlinear ways of thinking mm-hmm. that we otherwise would think. Like I think fundamentally different if I'm writing oh, yeah, than if I'm, I'm typing. And then I, I do, you know, both. I probably do a lot more typing uh, than, than handwriting, but I'm still glad that I'm able to. But there will, if you come to a point where you have a generation of kids, for example, that can't handwrite, yeah. it's not just that they can't handwrite. There's so much more about the human experience and what makes us human as mm-hmm. analog beings. That's actually just, it, it, it never even had a chance to manifest. Yeah. Putting aside all of the things we know as sort of negative outcomes of, of the prolonged use of that technology on our children, to isolate handwriting as a thing is like, it's just a, uh, a certain uh, level um, level of, of ignorance uh, right right there. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, if, if we're talking about displacement, right, um, which mm-hmm. is, I think, where you were going, the, the displacement is, I, I hadn't thought about it in those, those terms, so thank you for sharing that with me because I, I think that's actually a really helpful uh, construct. But fundamentally, like every innovation of any kind, right, is always a displacement. Like there's just no way, like we now don't live in large tribal groups anymore. We live in, you know, smaller nuclear families. But we also don't, most of us don't have to worry about being eaten by a bear on a regular yeah. basis, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so I think that's a little bit of a win. Um, yeah. This conversation in the sphere of, of parenting has been problematic for a lot of the same reasons as it has been problematic in the media or in, like, um, uh, like business discourse, right? And we, we have a lot of current points of view or culture that, um, you know, we are trying to hold on to or uh, reflect on a technology that we, uh, with a package of risks that we, we don't really understand. And like one of the, one of the craziest things, like if you, if you think about a parent as a, as a organism geared towards sensing risk, it's almost like that's the height. Mm -hmm. That's the height of our risk sensing abilities and for 20 years and still the debates that you're having right now are still happening with parents around social media and and phone use and stuff like that the blind spot is so severe our inability to sort of grasp these sort of like complex delayed indirect social technological risks it's the blind spot the weakness is so severe that parents able to see risk in almost anything Mm -hmm. are unable to tune themselves to this risk which is now like sort of objectively scientifically founded in their like children's best interest to avoid the thing we see is the the social pain of pulling it away like the 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 entitlement problem right the entanglement issue that's that's what we see. No, no, no. That's not right. Like we're we're so focused on the the pain that we can we can see that is direct and immediate. That's what we're good at. We cannot extract ourselves for these broader risks, and we're still struggling. And the reason why it's still hard is that society, our governments, that we have not built any consensus yet around these issues. 
that would make it easier. Scaffolding, social yeah. scaffolding that people need. These parents need something to like lean onto. They want to solve this problem, but it seems too risky and too hard to be the one pulling their phone away from their children. They need like a broader social scaffolding that will help like new norms develop. And that is like lawsuits, regulations, like really high profile changes that uh, are about the harm and about society putting safety and the needs of children ahead of these tools and ahead of debates about, you know, the exclusion that might happen or, you know, uh, the, the mode of learning needing to be technologically driven, all of these sort of secondary conversations, which are not sort of health, or mental health, developmentally oriented. Hmm. Yeah, like, I, people need that. Like we need we need the government to say like this. Actually, we've done the thing. It's 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 bad for you. Don't drink the water. You'll get sick. Like you, you need that. We can't all litigate this for ourselves. Like, and I just find it kind of to summarize, I kind of find it funny that like we are at our most risk sensitive for our children right. when we're early parent, parents still couldn't, can't even touch the complexity of an indirect nature of this risk. I, I think that it's like all things in society, this, we've been primed for this over decades, right? So on one hand, as, as a parent, look, it's hard to judge anybody in, in the shoes that they're in. Yeah. We try to manage screen time with our kids as best we can. Yeah. So, however, for a lot of parents, it's the tension of taking that away, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The additional load it adds on an already burdened yeah. parent, right? Absolutely. Who's trying to juggle so many things and now their yeah. kids frustrated because they yeah. don't have the device. That is kind of outweighing the risk, which they know is clear and present, but is a little bit more delayed. Mm -hmm. And we have, I think, as a society, kind of allowed ourselves to give into the quick fix more and more mm -hmm. because there's just more opportunities. Mm -hmm. There's quick fixes for diets. If someone's having trouble with, with losing weight, their surgery is an option. Yeah. If someone doesn't look the way that they want to look, they use a filter, right? Yeah. Like there's all these quick fixes to every yeah. single problem. And so we're willing to, over time, trade away our agency very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Because it deals with an immediate nuisance. Yeah. And it, even if we know, if we dig deep enough, even if we know that over the long term, that's not best for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's just like, but the, these, let's just say Facebook, without the duty of care, they were free to displace this burden mm -hmm. onto these kinds of challenges onto children, this burden onto parents. Right. And no individual parent can solve this kind of systemic issue. Right. They need the help of schools. They need the help of government. Schools have to say, no, it's bad. Not allowed in school. Right. People can't solve these problems on their own. Parents can't do this on their own or they do at far greater cost than most are willing. Right. And, and so it's no, it's not their fault. It's really, really hard. What is wrong about the situation is that all of the responsibility, all the externalities, all of all of the unintended consequences are conveniently pushed all the way down to the user mm -hmm. when we know the only way to manage those externalities and put the safety of the people using something first is to have institutional safe boundaries around that and like it doesn't work 
You can't just have super powerful technology, unfettered capitalism interfacing directly with people. We'll just get chewed up every single time. Huh. You, you literally could just paint the same story with different colors over and over. I, yeah. I'm thinking about the campaigns that started in the, I think it was around the 60s, 70s, around anti-littering. At the time, there was most soda and milk was you know sold in glass bottles. There was a few situations where people had recklessly thrown bottles out the side of cars on the highway and then some cows from a field came and chewed on it and died. And then you had farmers come together and say, like, we can't have this happen. And then the plastic industry saw its kind of entry point into the market, started pushing plastic. Yeah. But then instead of actually thinking about how plastics should be recycled, how they should mm -hmm. be handled, they just launched these really, I think, condemning ad campaigns targeted at consumers, making mm -hmm. them feel bad about littering, Yeah. right? As if it was the consumer's fault that this product even existed. So it, it's the same sort of thing, right? It's yeah, interfacing yeah. Oh, yeah. directly just, with yeah. the Push it onto the, make it, make it the consumer's fault is, is a tactic that has been, it's your personal decision. You know, it's, you can make a different decision. Yeah. Except for the whole world is structured in a way to sort of make that decision impossible. But it's your fault. Right, right, of course. Yeah, like how so, convenient. So this, this train is moving um, yeah, yeah. and there's no stopping it. So from where you sit today what yeah. is the right course do we have any, do we have any hope oh, i mean the good news is is that the uh, you know the regulation is coming it remains to be seen whether it will be adequate but like what's there's like a small awakening of uh, around these kinds of risks at the government uh, and institutional level you can see it happening around social media these sort of existential fears all although sort of missing the the most important topics have spurred a lot of um, say pretty constructive conversations about governance. Um, we are going to do more with AI than we ever did with social media, and we may start to fix both at the same time. And those are good things, but my uh, expectation is that the technology will far outstrip our ability to regulate it appropriately without some pretty extreme measures that I don't think we'll really have the global capacity or align, alignment mm -hmm. for. And so we're going to remain in this sort of situation where we're kind of like looking backwards. It's like we have all of these things and this technology is so powerful and we, I guess we should be using it for this and that. And we have to figure out how to regulate something that's already in the wild. So that disadvantaged position for governance in general is going to continue for the foreseeable future mm -hmm. and that is that compounds on itself uh, negatively because the thing you need is as at a disadvantage and that will be true unless there is like a pretty significant moment for ai and other digital technology at scale and you know like new frameworks and duties of care are put around it that are global and heavily enforced it seems pretty hard to bet on that given our history so yeah and, and i think to the point you're making earlier like there is no physical rate limiting step from some of what i've read it seems like we're going to get over the silicon chip shortage but we're going to run into a, a 
problem with shortage of trans like step down transformers it can mm. actually like step the voltage down enough to be able to power all these transistors yeah. and and so there there's some physical hardware capacity issues that that, yeah. that are coming but the, we'll inevitably overcome them because yeah. there's a market incentive to do that yeah and even that rate limiting step is not enough to slow it down for us mere mortals to be able to have enough time no, to, to, to it, catch up it's to not because it's again it's scaled first right right so these are only optimizations but it's already out there essentially the uh the orientation doesn't change and that I, that's oh, you know it doesn't have me very optimistic to be honest the thing that i think is most constructive is to sort of like take a digital technology at scale mindset and approach to uh the solution uh, so essentially scale with these tools the things you want as quickly as the technology is scaling. Like mm -hmm. that is an orientation that is new. It's like, well, we can use the same technology to apparently like potentially try and fix these like sort of biological um, and historical blind spots or challenges that we have around regulation, around dialogue and alignment and de democratic process that would be needed to sort of do regulation of this thing in reverse. Mm -hmm. We need the, techno Funny need enough, the technology. Funny enough, we need the technology to, to the now like figure out how to like manage the technology. That's the situation we're in. Leave it and, to humans to do that. Yeah, well, no. So, and, some of what I quickly read through the uh, there's a cheat sheet that came with the Biden's executive order on like AI mm -hmm. regulation, mm -hmm. and there's a couple of things that kind of touch on what you're talking about. Like one, I don't know which agency is going to be responsible for enforcing in the U.S., but like making sure that any AI generated content is watermarked, so they can be identified that it is you know AI generated. Well, how are you going to police that? You're going to need an AI to be able to do that, right? And then there's going to have to be some sort of system in place that many parties agree to that this is the standards by which a watermark will actually be generated and tracked. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, I think, for any really large undertaking, new AI undertaking, they're going to have to, that entity would have to submit their test results, yes, yeah. right, to, yeah. to some agency. Now, again, that can't be a manual process, the agency is going to have to use yeah. some sort of AI tooling mm -hmm. to be able to do that. And as is always a case in whether it's in cybersecurity or in hacking, it's always a cat and mouse game, right? Yeah. Everyone's going to try and skirt just under the regulations or they're going to try and skirt by them. And then the regulators have to become better cops, right? Mm -hmm. And figure out all those loopholes and close yeah. those. Maybe that is just the story of human history. Like it's that push and pull that cat and mouse that keeps us moving forward. But I don't yeah. see another way. Yeah, there is so much to build. I mean, again, like look at looking at any of the other complex institutions, you know, like there's layers and layers of like technical requirements for parts. Yeah. And like stress tests, like almost everything is regulated in a plane. There's consumer protections. There's guardrails around the industry. Right. And all like none of that exists. Like there's so many layers that it's, it's not just the technology that is, you know, like we need better ways of doing some testing and it needs to be a little bit more, there needs to be sort of a, a step in between the development and the release of some, some like the, this very kind of powerful technology that's great. And of course, we want to build technologies in more controllable and transparent ways. They're still overly black box and we need more mechanisms for 
to believe that we'll be able to control it. Those are technical challenges, all need frameworks and regulation around them. What of the economy, what of the consumer rights, mm-hmm. what, what of all of the other things, so, what of the duties of care, like what of all of that? Like we have so many additional layers that we will still need to build and those things are gonna need a really strong, as they always do, a strong collective public and mainstream belief first in the risks associated with this technology and then a expectation of its near absolute safety and the secure application of it in the defense of human rights, in the defense of sustainable development goals that we have like they should be it should be put to use in service of those things but like we we can't live in a future where we've given away all of our privacy where we've automated and distributed um, most of our innate human qualities to technology and there was no framework in place for you know what we were going to build as a society like as we were giving all of this away to like new kinds of technology companies and new kinds of capitalism like there's just so many ways this goes sideways without all the layers of protection that that we know we need to build something that will be sort of on net better for people or just not even better just safe just safe shouldn't be so much to ask for and yet uh yeah but it's uh, it's it's not happening which is why i spend my life as a bipolar person in both investing in and internally critiquing the enterprise application of these things while also working with the engineering change lab and tech stewardship to be a productive critic and work on some of the educational and the new skills and forms of dialogue we'll need to sort of solve some of these problems you kind of have to do both to appreciate the harm and like also try and find some productive way of contributing to solutions. But it's really hard to hold those two things. Like I'm a walking contradiction, like professionally. Aren't we all though? Oh, we are definitely, yeah. humans are walking contradictions. We are all... But like, I am, I am like a very discreet professional contradiction. Like corporate venture capital, tech technology stewardship, which is really fundamentally critical of this and i'm trying to make the most of both of those perspectives at the same time i I think that's just emblematic of the human experience there's that amazing quote it just haunts me till this day from a beautiful mind but uh conviction is a luxury of those on the sidelines you can choose not to play the game sure it's debatable whether or not that's making a meaningful contribution to it or not but uh yeah four years from now GPT Martin and GPT Anuj are having this conversation on a virtual couch. Yeah. And they look back at this conversation. What do they think of this? You know, I think it will be one of the many uh, ways that we've encoded history in hopefully more interesting ways. Like I will have also built a, a GPT for my dad and my family history. And insofar as we have great, longitudinal dialogues with friends about interesting subjects you know we can do the same thing with this you know we can have a conversation with our past 
while we're talking about our present and our future. And that will be cool. And that will be different. One of the things that we can solve for with this technology, unfortunately, it's, it comes along with everything else. Uh, we'll do a lot less forgetting because we'll be able to dialogue with history and contextualize it with this technology in ways that we've wow. never been able to before. And insofar as we can stop forgetting everything that we've done wrong in the past, we will probably evolve more in line with our best interests. I think that's true at an interpersonal level and mm. a societal level. Um, and this technology actually enables that. It just also enables everything else at the same time. That's also just pushing a whole new set of responsibilities onto a human being that's been hardwired to forget, right? Like whether it's forgetting conflict, forgetting exactly. feelings. Of course, yeah, yeah. And so wow. the weight of the perspectives of your entire history and family may also just be another form of mental yeah. stress. This reminds me of, uh, was it the Fortress of Solitude where... Uh, Superman's talking to Jor-El basically because his whole consciousness has been uploaded, yeah. which it always seemed like a novel concept. Mm -hmm. But then you interface, we interface with history and the past through a, you know, sort of a, the foggy rose colored glasses. Often, oh yeah. Um, right. Or in, in, they may not be story. rose colored in other cases, but it's rarely as nuanced and as perfect as we remember it being. We can't, it's hard to oh. remember what happened five minutes ago totally. and 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's interesting. I think that could uh, that could be a positive force in this technology, but you know we're gonna have to do a lot more. You can totally see to, couples doing the yeah. rewind button. Wait a second, six <laughs> weeks ago, this is what you said. Oh well, you know, we didn't really get into that, but you know, like there's the other the other decisions that will are coming are how close do we allow the data being used by these systems, how close do we allow it to get to the present and to our lived experience? ChatGPT is a year out of date. Well, what happens when it's real time? Mm -hmm. It can't hear our conversation right now. What happens when it can? Like those are those are not crazy, they're just progressions towards the present and the moment and they're all accessible. Yeah. So you sort of, for me, like you just have to assume these things are gonna happen, like time and space, there will no longer be buffer. You've got to imagine all of these things together and then ask those sort of more philosophical questions about like, how much are we distributing? How much are we giving away? And what does it mean to be human once we've given it away? And we have to imagine what is possible to give away when the access to our lived experience has collapsed to nothing. I think the saving grace for me is that my Rogers internet is so terrible that like, <laughs> I, I, I guess maybe I'm gonna be somewhat insulated from some of these concerns. Yeah, we'll, we'll also be uh, paying through the nose. Yeah, Martin, you've been extremely generous with your time and this has just been amazing to reconnect. I mean, speaking of space-time dilations, it doesn't feel like all that time's gone by, even though it has. Yeah, well, um, thanks thanks yeah. for the, the conversation. It was great and, you know, if we do things right, there will be many more versions of this conversation happening in perpetuity in society writ large. As it should be. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. See you in four years. <laughs>
You've been listening to the Awoken Word Podcast. Or at least, I think you have. Or maybe it just came on and you left the room and right now I'm talking to no one. But on the off chance that you actually did listen to the entire episode and you liked what you heard, there's a lot of ways that you can support Awoken Word. First of all, definitely subscribe to the podcast. We are available on all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And of course, all of this content is available on our website at www.awokenword.com. You can also connect with us over social media. On Instagram, we are at Awoken Word Podcast. On YouTube, Facebook, and X, formerly known as Twitter, we are at Awoken Word. If you've liked what you've heard, definitely spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your siblings, tell the crazy half-naked guy in the apartment across the street. Tell your pet iguana. If you feel like spreading the word amongst some ferns, go for it. However you see fit, spread the word. Like many others, we're trying to build a better world through meaningful conversation. And if you'd like to discuss any of the topics or the conversations that we've had here in your own podcasts, please feel free to do so. If you have questions, if you have recommendations for new guests or new topics, definitely do reach out. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Anu Drastogi. Peace out.